We're dealing with a pandemic now that is definitely challenging our healthcare system. What's coming as far as the dementias is going to have just as much impact. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant, a certified caregiving educator, dementia support group facilitator, and I've authored two books on caregiving. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. And I'm her husband, Mike. I'm a certified caregiver advocate and certified music therapist. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, and we all know that laughter is, in fact, the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Now, you know I never forget the wine. So, Mike, um, I remember how changes in our routine um, certainly affected your dad, um, especially around the holidays and when there were hurricanes or snowstorms, anything that kind of disrupted his routine um, caused problems not for him, not only for him, but also in the household in general. Do you remember that? I sure do. I, you know, he was very much um, early on in our caregiving where he would go for a lot of walks. And with the things like the hurricanes or the snowstorms, he wasn't able to do that. And it really upset his apple cart and caused a whole lot of um, angst, so to speak, in his daily, um, his, his daily routines. And his daily routine was definitely really important to him. I recall, you know, he shortly after he moved in with us, he took on the job of getting the mail. And if the mail didn't arrive at exactly the same time every single day, he was wondering what's gone wrong? What are they trying to pull? I would tell him, it's okay, dad, if it doesn't come today, it'll come tomorrow. And he's like, yeah, if it doesn't come today, it'll come tomorrow what's going on, and he would pace and pace and pace until the mail arrived, and he never opened the mail. He just wanted to bring it in, and it had to be at that certain time. I, I remember the one time you said to him, it's okay, we can wait for the bills till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> he was the same with his meals. You know, he was very regimented and uh, very upset if things changed. Yes, he was. Um, that brings us to today's guest. She's an award-winning freelance journalist with over three decades of experience, writing for many national publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and AARP. She has also co-authored the book, Making Up with Mom, which focuses on generational differences between women and their mothers and how to resolve them. In her writing, she extensively focuses on issues of aging, the ways that boomers are redefining retirement and reinventing themselves during this period of life, and also the challenges of caregiving. She recently had an article in the New York Times titled, When Dementia Meets the Coronavirus. Please welcome to our show, Ms. Julie Halpert. Welcome, Julie. Hi, Julie. Thank you for having me. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. Um, we have all read your article and found it extremely informative, especially now when we all have these concerns. And um, I'm interested in your what you may have learned while you were researching this article and talking to the subject of the article, Mr. Maida. Well, first of all, I was inspired by him. Um, I found him when I was speaking with um, 
uh, a media person who was connecting me to uh, another person I interviewed in the article with Wayne State University. And evidently, Mr. Maida has chronicled an incredible journey of, of the caregiving experience with his wife. Um, what did I learn? I learned um, I had such an appreciation for the complexities of caring for someone and how that is has just escalated now in this time of the virus, not just for people who are caring for someone at home where they have some, uh, you know, some uh, modicum of control, but for those who have loved ones in um, senior centers or facilities or memory care facilities where they can't visit. And um, I imagine given how short-staffed a lot of these places are and are going to be even more short-staffed as people become ill, that can be really very frightening. But just the day-to-day journey that he's on and the way he cares for his wife with such tenderness and sensitivity um, and really just gives his all to her. I was, I was really inspired, um, not just by him, but all of the other caregivers out there who are doing this right now. You're mentioning about, you know, the care facilities and, and being close to visitors and, and how difficult that can be. I'm sure that is uh, very disturbing to some of the people that are in the care facilities who are used to getting visitors from home um, who can't do that anymore. Um, and we're hoping that with technology like Zoom um, and video chats, that they might still be able to speak with their loved ones. But it's a big sea change what's going on right now. I noticed in your article that you mentioned about uh, dementia patients um, may not be so much at risk, but that seems to be changing. We're hearing more and more about people in the facilities that are coming down with this disease. Right. When I when I said that, I was talking about people who are being cared for in their homes because they have limited social interactions. But obviously in the facilities, you know, you, you have someone bring it in and it can spread like wildfire. So I'm sure that they are just as much at risk, if not more so, because they're in, you know, contact with caregivers who might have gotten it from, you know, outside of the facility. And then, you know, it's just spread so rapidly that I'm sure they're, they're definitely at risk. And even people being cared for in their home, like, you don't know, you know, perhaps your caregiver went to the grocery store and was careful, but might have come into contact with, with someone who had the virus. And often the symptoms don't manifest themselves right away. So I'm sure they're at risk. And, and, and the other thing I mentioned in the piece is that a lot of dementia patients have underlying chronic health conditions, which makes them even more vulnerable. That's exactly correct. You know, it's interesting on a, another podcast that we did, we talked about the, um, the FaceTime, the, uh, the Zoom and different things like that, even the uh, video chat on your phone. And one of the things that the caregivers need to be conscious of is that the facilities may not have the bandwidth to do some of those things. And your person that's in the facility may not be able to operate. And what you need to do prior to any of that stuff is understand what the capabilities are of the facility itself. And not only that, how available are the nurses or the caregivers in the facility? How available are they to help with the phone chat? And you should keep it to once or twice a day, not call every hour, as you might normally would. So that's um, interesting that it can help allay some of the fears but uh, and, and the um, angst of the care E, but also you can, um, you can cause more other issues 
with the um, caregivers in the facility. Right, and I believe that they're very short staffed right now. Yes. And, and you know, as this, as this, you know, expands, that you know, people will be out sick, right? So I'm sure it's. I mean, technology can be a real boon, but as you mentioned, there are limitations, of course. Yeah, you always want to contact the facility first and understand their parameters and stay within those parameters. Now we're talking when we're talking about um, people that are care caring for their loved ones at home. What very often happens is you have both the person who is the caregiver and the person needing care who are in that dangerous age group of over 60. Um, in my caregiver support group, I have a number of caregivers who are in their mid to um, later 60s who are caring for parents who are in their late 80s or 90s. So you have vulnerable people taking care of vulnerable people. And while they may be at lower risk because they are giving and receiving care at home, they're also far more vulnerable because they're because of their age and because of those pre-existing conditions. And also caregivers themselves tend to run themselves ragged. It's exhausting. And so you make yourself more vulnerable to you know, your immune system might be weakened because you're really focused on the care of someone else, which is, which is very draining, which is why one the, the physicians in my piece said that it's really important to, for caregivers to give themselves breaks, to find ways to not put themselves or their, their, um, the person they're caring for in danger, but to even get out, take walks, just to, just to get a breather to help, you know, so that they aren't worn down, which makes them more susceptible to getting this. And that's so very, very hard to do. I mean, in your article, you talked about Mr. Matus getting up twice during the night to attend to toiletry needs of, of his wife. Yep. And so sleeping or lack of sleep, lack of rest is one of the things that caregivers I know, um, deal with every day. I know when we were taking care of my dad, Roger, that Bobby slept with one and a half ears open. She really was sleep deprived and that went on for for seven years and i believe that's what uh, mr matis has been dealing with he's been going for seven years also right exactly yes uh it's very true and now it's it's who can you trust to you know to give you a break it's it's complicated but the one takeaway i got from the physician dr langa that i interviewed was that whatever you can do to give yourself a break it's worth even if even if it raises your risk of getting it uh, just slightly, it's worth it because you've got to take care of yourself before you can take care of somebody else. And uh, something that I like to share with with the public and with caregivers and those who are going to become caregivers, and that's going to be rising rapidly as well, is taking care of yourself when you're a caregiver um, can take just a few moments. Uh, we like to think of, you know, taking care of yourself as, you know, going and taking a 30-minute nap or having somebody come in and take over for you, but that may not be possible. But if you can just take a few minutes um, to walk into a separate room and, and do some uh, deep breathing exercises or um, go into the bathroom and, or outside and, and scream if you need to, anything that can help you uh, get rid of some of that stress. And another thing, especially now in the time of, of COVID-19, is try not to be too tuned in to all of these updates about how fast things are growing and the shortages for um, safety equipment and that kind of thing. Just try to stay away from that because it's gonna to continue to grow. 
and we know that and we don't need to have every single detail. Yeah, those are very good points. Absolutely. Especially the news. I mean, even healthy people who aren't caregivers, like it's it's very gloomy and it can be it cause you to be very depressed listening to that. It's very frightening. <laughs> yes, it is. Now, I noticed that in the article, one of the things that was mentioned in addition to not necessarily listening to the news was playing music. And um, we definitely know that music helps to calm people. Um, it helps to bring them back to maybe a better time in their lives and, and help them uh, avoid some of this doom and gloom that we're talking about. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Now, one of the things, being a music therapist, one of the things they taught us was when you're playing music in, in the article, it said play soothing music. Um, and that's fine, well, and good for relaxation. But the, you want to choose music that means something to the person that you're caring for. Um, sure. If from their era, so to speak, um, they, they might not be in tune to the soothing Kenny G., but something of a slow big band era, if it's an elder parent, um, that might just bring them down and, and basically chill them out and maybe even get a nap out of it. So if you're going to do the music, make sure that it's something that they recognize and it's from their era of music is uh, one of the things as a music therapist we always look at. Well, how about the upbeat music? Like maybe some of the music from the 60s and 70s that some of these people enjoyed and maybe it'll get them up and moving around a little this bit is true. and help them, you know, burn off some of that energy. Yeah, and, and I'm sure there, there have been pretty some good studies that have shown the, the impacts of that, even especially among Alzheimer's patients who may not be able to remember basic things, but they can remember lyrics to a song they heard a long time ago. So Absolutely. I know with my dad, he grew up in Italy, so opera was his thing. And we would turn on um, opera, whether it be Mario Alonza or uh, uh, Pavarotti or somebody he hadn't heard of until I introduced him to it was Bocelli. And he would just sit and close his eyes and he would just have this look of, of relaxation and bliss while he was listening to it. And it was, it was very emotional for me to just see that and have, be able to do that with my dad. So it's, it, it, it really means a lot to them and it can mean a lot to you too. Oh, for sure. Um, Julie, since, since you write about this um, quite a bit and especially now with what's going on, has what you've learned led you to um, doing some planning for what may happen in, in your family? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, my mother uh, is 83 and is already having some memory issues. And um, we're really doing our best to try to be proactive, um, you know, having her finances in order. She's always been herself very proactive about, you know, having a, a, a recent will, updating her will, power of attorney, all that kind of stuff. But now it's really, we're really trying to make sure that is all taken care of. Um, and then also anticipating she just stopped driving. And so, we are trying, you know, that was a hard conversation. Um, and we, we've tried to find her drivers. We're anticipating over time. She lives in her house by herself, getting her some, um, a regular, regular care. Um, because I cover these issues, I'm hyper aware of all the things that need to be done. And I hope that I'll be similarly proactive so that my, I mean, the whole point is to reduce the burden on your own children, right? So 
you know, having a, a will and just having all that, those kinds of things lined up. I've also really, I cover technology a lot, especially as it pertains to the aging industry. Um, I go to a conference, which I highly recommend um, you all might find helpful, called the Boomer Summit. It's run by Mary Furlong, and it focuses on um, entrepreneurs who are developing products for the aging industry. And there are technological solutions coming you know, coming forward at such a rapid pace, and they're really going to change the quality of the aging experience. Everything from passive systems that can monitor your loved one in their home to really high-tech communication devices, ways that family members together can keep track of, of an elder um, uh, elder person's care regime and their finances. I mean, it's just exploding. Even robotic pets, which is, you think, not a big deal, but there are these new pets that you can get. They're robots for your loved one and can really help them to to nurture something and to feel less alone. So I'm, I'm sort of really tracking all that at a feverish you know, pace, knowing that someday it could come in handy for my loved one and possibly for, you know, down the line for me as well. One of the things that, that I work on uh, pretty consistently these days is what I call prepare to care, um, teaching working age adults what do they need to do now to prepare for what's definitely coming. Because we know in the next 10 to 15 years, these cases are going to double and triple in number across the world. I mean, we're dealing with a pandemic now that is definitely um, challenging our healthcare system. What's coming as far as the dementias is going to have just as much impact. Um, and while we talk about maybe how we could have prepared for this pandemic, people are not necessarily preparing for the one that's, that's to come. So oh, that's, it's yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, especially if you look at, you know, one in 10 people over 65 already have Alzheimer's and 10,000 people a day are turning 65, right? So we're gonna have a lot of older people. And unfortunately, it's it, people perceive it as it's the aging baby boomers that are pushing this, but it's also younger onset. We're finding more and more people who are getting it under the age of 65, um, some in their uh, mid 40s to early 50s. And that I think is um, that's definitely not age-related, um, probably environmental and cause, but there are so many things um, and so many medications that people are taking. So I would say that working age adults need to start thinking not just about taking care of parents, but also taking care of a spouse, because in the next 10 to 15 years, that's exactly what we're going to be looking at. Now, I was just talking to someone yesterday on a caregiver support group Zoom meeting similar to this who was telling me about a watch that she had ordered for her, her mother, and it has a GPS system in it. So if mom should walk out of the house, um, she, she will know where she is. And she can also communicate with mom from her phone through that watch that mom is, is wearing. So that's a good example of some of the technologies that you were talking about. Yeah, you just have to make sure she's always wearing the watch. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, if someone leaves the house, if they don't, you know, they, they there's no way to track them remotely without it. But um, that's, that's the one issue. But I have to say, like, that's why some of these passive systems, when you're in the house, they're just these things that just go, they're small devices that go in the house 
and can track you while you're there. So if you fall, you don't have to worry about wearing something, um, you know, so that I think that's going to be, I mean, obviously, again, that doesn't help if you leave the house, but if you're housebound, um, you know, these are, these are going to be really revolutionize the ability for people to keep an eye on their loved ones. I know when we had Mike's dad, I had a visual uh, baby monitor. It was about the size of a, of a purse, but I could, I could carry uh, it around the house, no matter where I was. I could see where he was in his room and what was going on there. And I actually had it beside my bed, which might have been one of the reasons why I didn't sleep real well, because if I could hear him, um, then I would be looking to see what was going on in there. Yeah, that's like when you have a baby and every breath you want to get up and take care of him. It's a similar situation, yes. it's kind of yes, a mixed bag. Is. Yeah. One of the things that you brought up in the, in the article about Mr. Meta was um, that he has this fear that they could simultaneously get infected. And that is a very, very real fear. And he said, or you related, he had a power of attorney and guardianship, but was concerned that those documents could get lost if he is not with her. Um, one of the things that could be done is have those documents with the doctors that Yes, absolutely. To. And I, I, would, I would have hoped that he would have thought of that. Um, the, the experts, the medical experts I spoke with said, have them on you know, their person, but also have them, you know, with the institution, the medical institution that yes. you're taking them to. So I'm a little surprised. I would have to think that he, he does have that. Um, I don't know. Maybe he was concerned about what would happen on the way to the hospital if he was somehow incapacitated and not able to communicate. Uh, but of course, that's that's the best solution for sure. Yeah. I always had it, what I called my go bag in my, in my car and it had a list of all his medications cause it didn't have mine. Um, but we could probably create our own go bag here that had a list of medications that were taken. Um, but I had changes of clothes. I had books to read. I had uh, basically uh, traveling companion of anything I thought the doctors might need and what I would need sitting beside his bedside sometimes for hours at a time. And I, I mean, think that's a good idea too. Very smart. Absolutely. Oh, she's, she's extremely smart. I'll vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> you sh I should be interviewing both of you for my next story. So. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> do you, do you have a care plan? Do you have a team in place? And, you know, a lot of times when we're talking to people about caregiving, we, we talk to them, we, they seem to think it's, um, it's the person that's going to do the day-to-day -day primary care. But you also need somebody um, maybe to take over some of the other activities of keeping a household running, like making sure the cars get inspected and maybe cooking a meal from time to time or sitting and telling stories with grandma if you have young people in the house. But to have an idea of what your resources are, not only in the community, but within your family itself. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's interesting, my sister is now living with my mother because her house is in the process of, be of being remodeled and that is now on hold. So she will be with my mother for longer than she anticipated, but she lives close to my mother. And we also have, there's an amazing like shuttle service in her community that takes her 
you know, places that are nearby. We do want to hire somebody to be, who can, you know, not just do the driving, but cook a couple, cook some meals, check in on her changed light bulbs, you know, the kind of things my sister often does, but it's a lot for her. Um, and that we, you know, that we, it's hard because, because if your loved one wants to be independent, it, it's a challenge getting them to accept help. Um, but we'll be more assertive about that, I'm sure, in the coming months. And I also, what I'll do is I, when I cook, I cook and freeze. So I live an hour away, but if I'm cooking something and it's a big meal and I have leftovers, I'll be freezing little meals. So when I see her, I bring out a bunch of frozen things she can easily defrost and have nutritious meals, you know, for a while. Uh, one of the things that I love to share with people who are in a caregiving um, situation, if somebody offers, says, what can I do to help? Give them a job. <laughs> yes, for sure. We ha unfortunately have not had a lot of people say that at this point, because as I said, my mom is pretty well functioning and living independently. So, um, you know, we'll see as time goes on whether, you know, when that changes. But yeah, for now, um, we have not had a lot of people coming forward. Although my cousin has been doing a lot of the driving for her he's in between jobs and, and he's loving doing it and she loves having him do it. And that's worked out really lovely. So, oh, um, yeah, I mean, it's not a long-term thing, of course. The other challenge, which I'm sure you see all the time, is I actually did find someone from my mother, a lovely, she doesn't want to have an older person, like, caring for her because it looks like they're a caregiver. And we found this adorable recent high school graduate who would come and help her with her computer and change her light bulbs and drive her around and sometimes cook meals, organize her cupboards. And then, you know, within four months, she decided to move, right? So it's really challenging, as I'm sure you know, finding good people and being them. Um, you know, it's I like the challenge. idea of having somebody younger. Um, you know, I, I'm well old enough to go to the local senior center, but I don't want to only be involved with people my age. Right. I like time with people of, you know, children, teenagers, young adults. Yep. Uh, and the, uh, the elderly particularly like to spend time with children. Oh, for sure. In fact, she lives in a neighborhood and she doesn't want to leave her home because she likes to see the, the babies and the dogs, you know, going by her house and the young people next door with their kids and, you know, the teenagers, you know, getting ready for prom. I mean, that, that gives her joy. And to be with just a bunch of older people has never been anything that she's wanted to do. So um, it does keep you vital, but it is challenging living by yourself in a house, Absolutely. right? And I have to say, to me, elderly will always be 20 years older than whatever my birthday is right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should see this one with her tutu, with our um, preteen granddaughters dancing around. <laughs> <laughs> so she's not your typical um, <clears throat> year old. <laughs> like to go back to where you were talking about... Um, taking the driver's license away or mom stopping driving, um, that can be a very complicated and difficult issue uh, for a lot of people when that time comes. We see, it seems like we know that when we start driving, eventually we're going to reach a point in time where we're not going to be able to do that anymore. But that's always far, far in the future. Like when we get married and we say, till death do you part, we, we know that's not going to happen for at least 50 to 100 years from now. Uh, but the, it sneaks up on us when, when that happens. And it's often difficult for people. 
what kind of conversation did you have with mom? So um, it was a series of conversations, and I was told it should be a series of conversations. She had a couple of accidents um, and then um, just kept getting the car kind of in, you know, beat, like banging into things and claiming that she didn't know what happened. And um, it just got really, really pretty serious. And she was really absolutely insisting that she not want to drive. But then initially she said, okay, I just want to drive at night. And then she said, okay, I'll just drive nearby in the daylight. And I said, well, that's when you're getting in your accidents. So I had taken her to um, a wonderful geriatric practice we have here at the University of Michigan. And they suggested that she do a driving assessment. And it's an amazing, I think these programs are available in lots of places. Unfortunately, they're not covered by insurance. It was about $194. And they spent two hours with her assessing her driving in a lab, not on the road. And they, their assessment was that she was not, she should not be driving. They, they didn't even recommend a road test, that they had done a risk assessment of like zero to five, five being the worst. And she was right there. And so, um, of course, that wasn't enough to really convince her. She was very upset. And we would say it, my brother was very good about saying, hey, look, nothing else is wrong with you that much physically. This is no big deal. Young people use Ubers all the time. I have friends who, who just don't like traffic and congestion and paying for insurance. So they, um, they've decided not to drive. It's, it's not a big deal anymore, kind of try, try to change that. But she was very stubborn. And, you know, I said, you know, we just really want to keep you safe and we want to keep other people safe and we're going to get you a driver and you can take Ubers. And she was really just not happy about it. And, you know, we we tried to say, look, I'm sure this must feel hard to you because that was the one thing that she really prided herself on. But we just kept at it. And then I was really disturbed by those findings. Like I was worried that she might be a danger to other people. And so we said, mom, we just don't want you driving anymore we're going to find a driver for you. And she said, okay, fine. And the next thing you know, she had taken the car out again. And uh -huh. um, so I said to my sister, you have to take the keys away. And you just can't, we can't, we just, we, we got to be done with this. And my sister did. And my mom didn't ask for the keys back because I think she was embarrassed to think she'd misplaced the keys, which she often does. Um, and she sort of just accepted it. I mean, it, and then we had the quarantine right after, like this just happened. So she hasn't been going anywhere anyway, right? So I don't know if the full reality of it hit in, but then her cousin started driving her to doctor's appointments and she really likes him. And so we seem to have um, gotten through it, but it was, it was, I mean, for years I've been trying to do this and um, you know, we wanted, well, also she's, we wanted to make it appealing financially. And we said, look, she's kept her car, which she owns outright because she wants people to drive the car so she can be in the car. But you know, if she sells the car, she's paying a ton of money in insurance and she could really, you know, it would be cost effective for her not to drive. And then she kept getting in accidents and having to pay out of pocket for her car to be fixed. So it was, it was a long conversation. It was a hard conversation, but it had to be done. I think there's a lot of older people out there driving because their family members are just like, well, they won't listen to me. And I think it's dangerous to them and to potentially other people. And I just, we, I just couldn't live with the, the idea that she'd either hurt herself or other people. It was just, it had to be done. It's not only dangerous physically to the driver and other people they might encounter, but it can be hugely um, financially impactful. Um, if you have a family member with a diagnosis of dementia and they're driving and you know about it and there's an accident, even if they're not at fault. In many states, um, you could be liable for that. 
But I want to mention that for areas that don't have that wonderful testing that you referenced, and I have not heard of that before, um, you can um, have the doctor contact the, the elderly person and talk to them about not driving or take them to the DMV and have them tested. And most of the times they don't even pass the written test. They don't get to the actual um, driving test. And then the DMV takes the driver's license away and it's not the family that is doing it to them. Interesting. Our job is to be very supportive and say, we know this is difficult for you and then make arrangements like you did to make sure that they get to go out in the community the way they wanted to by hiring a driver or having somebody uh, take them from place to place. But yeah, I didn't realize that the that. DM, I didn't realize that the DMV did that, that you could do that. Oh, I thought yeah. that, that it's not required for them. So I didn't think you could just take them in and have them give them that test. Well, you want to call and you want to make an appointment. Yeah. Yes. And then what happens is, is the DMV are the bad guys, not you. And sure. then you can, you can um, empathize with uh, your, your, the person under your care and you could be on their side as opposed to being the bad guy. Well, it's interesting huge. though. I thought, I thought that would be, I thought that was going to happen with these other people who had given her the assessment and she said that she was just, you know, tired and bored and didn't want to answer the questions correctly. And then she would say to other people, my kids are trying to take away my car. So I think no matter who gave her the news, it, we would be the bad guys and yeah. I'm okay. I can live with that. I just, you know, exactly. right. The alternative is living with something bad happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you loud and clear. So, uh, let me ask, so you wrote this article about Mr. Meta, and I'm, I'm curious as to what motivated you to go out and specifically find him and write the article. So I wish I could say that the, this, the idea for the story was my, my idea, um, because most of the time I come up with the ideas for my stories, but that was not the case. It was my editor's idea. I had pitched some other stories related to um, mental health and um, COVID-19, and she said, you know, I'm wondering if, if there's a burden out there uh, for caregivers of dementia patients. Could you explore this? And in every one of my pieces, I always have a, a, a person. I mean, my, my pieces, first and foremost, they need to tell stories about people. And there's no more human story than the story of caregiving. So I always look for people, and then I was referred to him by, um, by, by this, this medical institution. And I have to say, they couldn't have connected me with a better person. I, I mean, he is so articulate and just, just really personifies just a, care, a perfect caregiver, someone who's so selfless, truly an unsung hero, and his, is, is spending so much time worrying about how he can keep both him and his wife safe. And I was, you know, sometimes you are put in contact with someone, you interview them, and they just don't quite tell the story. But I, uh, he really did. Um, and I was grateful to him for sharing that story. Well, it's interesting reading this story. I definitely feel that emotion that, that he is so totally committed um, to taking care of his wife and taking care of himself so he can take care of his wife. And it was just a, a wonderful piece on a pretty amazing guy. Well, thank you for that. And he, yes, he definitely is. Um, the little bit I've gotten to know him, he has definitely inspired me for sure. Well, um, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. We know you're pretty busy and um, it's been an absolute joy um, 
talking to you. Uh, it was a joy reading your article and on some level getting to know Mr. Maida. But um, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and our listeners. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me and allowing me to talk about this important topic. And I uh, hope that we uh, stay in touch now that I found you and, and you're aware of us. Hopefully, um, we can share some insights going forward. Absolutely. Um, honey, we talked about a few things. Let's uh, recap a little bit. One of the things that, uh, that Julie talked about was a boomer summit. I had no idea there was such a thing. No, but we'll definitely look into it. You bet. <laughs> And that she went and she had a, a driving assessment done. And while it costs a little bit of money, it's not an exorbitant amount of money. And if it gives you that peace of mind where you can have some assessment of the person's capabilities, I think it's well worth the, the money spent. So um, we might have to look more into the uh, driver assessments as opposed to just going to the DMV because you know, everybody loves going to any DMV across this country. Huh. Well, you can find more information about Julie on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page or contact us through the Roger That Show website. To find out more about us or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org.